I think I think I first met you. Do you remember how we first met? I I, I assume I was probably drunk in a bar somewhere, <laughs> uh, tighten gigs or uh, trying no, to book no, bands or something. Not at all. I think I found I found the Dead on Music page online and shot you an email and you give me you booked my first show, which was McHugh's. Me yeah. and me and Nathan played, supporting some guy from some guy in England. That was way back in two thousand and eleven, probably. Uh, yeah, to 2011. Yeah, how did you become a promoter? Because when I first, obviously, when I first started, I didn't know what promoters were. I thought bars booked. I thought bars and venues booked booked yeah. shows, but they don't actually promoters. It's promoters that hire the venues and book bands. And every city needs promoters. And there was a while where you were one of the busiest promoters in, in Belfast. How did you end up kind of in that field and doing that? Well, when I first moved to Belfast, I didn't realize, like yourself, that, you know, promoters were a thing. And um, I had no idea how gigs worked and, uh, you know, what what went into to putting on a show. I used to turn up at them and there'd be a band on stage and you'd go along and enjoy the music and leave at the end of the night mm-hmm. and it was all great. And I had no knowledge of how any of that stuff worked. And um, when I was 18, I moved up to Belfast and into student halls that were actually run by the Presbyterian Church uh-huh. in Derry Volga Avenue. Yeah. And uh, I moved in there and I met with a couple of like really great, really creative, um, artistic people. Um, one of them was Jan Carson. Um, yeah, no, Jan. He's, he's now an author. Um, another one was a girl called Louise McFedridge and a guy called Johnny Mitchell who played bass mm-hmm. in a few bands. And they started a little acoustic night in the Bush Cafe which I've no idea what the cafe is called now, but it's it's up on Elmwood Avenue. And it used to belong to the Presbyterian Chaplaincy. Yeah, and yeah. they booked acoustic shows. And that, like back then, it was kind of year 2000, 2001. There were a lot of, um, I don't like to call them Christian artists now, but artists with, you know, some, some kind of Christian aspect to uh-huh, their music. Uh-huh. Um, so we're talking people like, um, Peter Wilson, who went on to become Duke Special, uh, Foy Vance, mm-hmm. Ian Archer, Juliet Turner, Brian Houston, mm-hmm. and um, they started um, just booking these people to come and play upstairs in the cafe. And I was kind of living in student halls with with these guys and hanging out with them and uh, kind of learnt the ropes there, you know. And, yeah. Uh, got to meet these people who were you know, pretty big artists at the time, you yeah. know, and that's, you know, it's maybe a little bit before Ian Archer was writing for Snow Patrol or anything yeah. like that, but still a, you know, well-known artist in, in Northern Ireland. And, um, it was, you know, a couple of years before Peter Wilson would, would form Duke Special, but he was playing in Bully and Benzine Headset at the time. And yeah. People whose music I loved. And then you're just, you know, not only getting to see them, but getting the ha- not that there was a backstage in the Bush Cafe, <laughs> or but, a green you know, room. but you know, hanging hanging out with these guys before and after yeah. shows, and and watching how a sound man works, and learning about the the actual you know running of a show, um, and then when I moved out of those those halls, like I was there for four years, I think, and then started working for Christian Aid, um, for a year and had the opportunity as, as like a youth worker there to put on some shoes of my own mm-hmm. and went back to, you know, what I knew and, and got people like Peter Wilson and Brian Houston to play shows to play for me shows. and 
it was just like yeah this is this is fun you know <laughs> um and then also like you know getting getting kind of older and wiser and starting hanging out with more bands you know mm-hmm. and then people like yourself and Stephen McCartney for, who played in Farriers at the time now King Cedar um uh, meeting up with the guys in the 1930s um all these people still still really creative still making yeah. music now and um, it just got busier and busier got busier and busier and the more you, you kind of go out and hang out on the scene and the more people you meet and yeah. the more contacts that opens up and you start meeting um, managers of bars you start meeting sound men start meeting guys and bands and it just it all comes together and you're sitting there with this like really nice you know mailing list <laughs> you're going I fancy putting on a show you know and back then it was, it was all about MySpace you know and of we, course when yeah. we first started putting on shows just sitting there on MySpace when you know when I was supposed to be in, in work you know doing, doing a real job um firing off messages you know and, and people were so keen to to put on shows and, and to people, play were, people and were so keen to play and, and stuff and yeah just it, it kind of spiraled from there and then we, we ended up with uh, a regular kind of monthly night down in McHugh's and um, bringing like, bands over from England and yeah we, we mostly work with local artists but every now and again you would you would get messages from, mm-hmm. from people outside of Northern Ireland being like hey we, we've heard about your show you know like a band from here would go over and play a show in Manchester and you know after the show they're drinking at the bar with that promoter and they're like oh there's these guys who do a similar thing in Belfast you yeah. know if you, you want to send bands over you know to, to you know hang out and play shows there you know these are the guys to get in touch with yeah it was mainly and it was mainly folk country was, type type shows wasn't it yeah what what we did was was mainly kind of country folk americana mm-hmm. um yeah we, we put on a few other shows but um kind of around that that um that time um when uh, myself and and andy cowan uh who, who i worked uh with uh ran a company called dead on music um and it was you know 2009 onwards there was just that that big kind of new folk um, kind of revival with the it likes was, of yeah. uh, Mumford and Sons and Noah and the Whale and Laura Marling all breaking through. You know, open house festival was open house festival was happening was then really in the city just, too. Yeah, really just taken off and they they kind of moved. I was before they had moved kind of out to Bangor, you know. So they were putting on huge shows with like a Fleet Foxes and Wilco and. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was just a lot of kind of hype around that Americana scene, and so many bands in Belfast making that type of music. Very much so. It was almost it would almost be impossible to find a show in those days without a folk artist on the line in the lineup. Yeah, uh, definitely. And um, you know, a, a lot of those those people are still still out there making really great music, which is is nice to see. They're not all doing the kind of folk and country and Americana yeah, thing anymore. Progressed and, and changed and and moved on to whatever. Kind of way the wind, the wind took them. Yeah, we, you know we we were fortunate to put on really early shows by people like um, Karen Lavery, who's you know huge on on Spotify now and then yeah. kind of touring the world and and putting out absolutely fantastic albums. You know, I know it's amazing to be. You know, to have people come to you and just go, "Oh yeah, you put on my first show in Belfast." <laughs> it's you know, it's it's great. Yeah, you know. it's. I mean, it is. It is a big. It's a it's a really beautiful thing, I guess, because I think sometimes we forget or I forget that 
you know just it's it's just ordinary people putting on events that that make the city what it is and it may, may make they make these nights for tourists to come and see and you know it's local people that create the hype and create the culture in, in the city you know it's so important to have people people doing that i think i think we missed it on music uh, yeah um that that that's really nice to hear um <laughs> i i kind of miss it sometimes as well um you know i i don't i don't want to ever become one of those people that just you know relies on something that that happened yeah. years ago or you know to keep harking back to old stories nostalgia and, you know yeah i don't want to be sat in 30 years time doing the same thing just about shows that we put on in, in 2010 <laughs> or you know talking about bands that don't exist anymore yeah um and i think that the city's changed um and i think it's changed for the better you know and personally i don't know the promoters anymore yeah. but they're still out there and, and great shows are still happening they are and there are so many more venues and it's interesting yeah. to see venues sort of take off um, the Sunflower upstairs was a, was a big venue for a while and then the Ulster Sports Club tends to, seems to be the one that everyone's trying to yeah. trying to play now um, and, and you know there's there's venues and, and, and potential for playing shows in so many places now that aren't just Bar, bars as bars, well yeah. yeah there's a great place out in uh, east belfast in the newton arts road called the 343 right um, which is uh like a, a safe space for the lgbt community yeah and they're putting on shows it's you know it's, it's an old disused bank building uh-huh and there are you know so many places like that in the city that were just lying idle going to waste mm. and you know forward-thinking creative people are now taking over these spaces and you know things like culture night have a huge part to play in that because yeah it, it kind of opens that potential of like here's an, an old hairdressers let's put on a show <laughs> you know and and, and open it up yeah to the, the pop-up culture and, almost yeah and you know to to have those those places now like the 343 where people of different communities can come and be like this is our place mm. Um, these are our artists. These are the fans. Let's bring them together and and, and put on a show and, and do yeah. something fun. I think people too take it. They don't realize. I mean, I I love to play. I'd love to play a series of house shows. Um, and I, I've only ever done that a few times. But I think I think a lot of artists would be very open to that. To you know, go and spend on a Saturday night in someone's house with a bunch of people that are keen to listen to music and you know eating some food and having some drinks and and having a good time i think i love i would love for that to take off in, in belfast that type of thing hasn't really happened in, in, a, in a while not that i've seen but then i haven't really been obviously playing you talked about the changes the changes in belfast in the music scene what where do you think it's it's going to go or do you have any idea of, of where things are going to end up um or do you think will it, people just double down and go back to what they know? I think people will always stick to what they know. And I mean, I, I mentioned Terry Hooley earlier and he talks about, you know, the, the rough and ready days of, of putting on DIY shows in, yeah. in the, the old harp bar and, you know, the pound and, and places like that. And they were, they were DIY, they were punk. They were a bunch of guys turning up, plugging in, playing a show hoping desperately that people would turn up to hear them you know and mm. that that's never going to change that's always going to happen 
whether it was in the 1970s in in the pound or the harp bar or or even before that you had the likes of van morrison and them as, as teenagers playing in the maritime yeah through to you know stuff that happened right through the troubles you know that i can't even comprehend mm. how you would get a bunch of people out to a show in the seventies or eighties. On the street, on the yeah, on the streets, um, in a in a in a bar late at night. Yeah, and and you know what we did then, in, in the kind of two thousands, and what people are still doing now is getting out there, booking a venue, putting people on stage, and just desperately hoping that the people the will people, turn up. You people know? will turn up, and those those shows are never going to go away. That that's never going to change. Um, a lot of what Belfast seems to be focusing on now is is the tourist culture um mm, I guess because we had I, I guess we didn't we didn't have it for so many years we really only have the tourist that tourist culture for the last 20 yeah 20, 20 at most 20 uh, at most um and you know it's it's great to see it's it's beautiful to welcome people from all over the world into mm. the city um unfortunately that i feel leads to a lot of what I'm going to call Irish bars kind of cropping up. Gimmicky and, type music. And, and yeah, and, and you've got, you know, kind of trad sessions happening now and or, or just in the worst case scenario, just a Spotify playlist, you know, on mm. in the background. And that that kind of takes away from the, the kind of the DIY music scene. I feel, you know, it's, it's hard to compete with, with those bars who are just, you know, paying a few hundred quid to some guy to sit in the corner and play a wagon wheel. <laughs> and, you know, we're, you know, promoters and, and, and stuff are trying to book bands and get them venues and, and some some places just aren't interested anymore. Yeah, and I guess they're just trying to do their thing and pay their bills and and and, and move, with, move with whatever way the culture's, their culture or their drinkers are going yeah. to, you know, and I suppose a lot of bars, bars do that. And as you know, in Belfast, bars come and go and you'll see the, the same bar with a different name every six months yeah it it, it happens and it's 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 a natural change um i'm not necessarily saying it's a good or bad thing it's mm. just it, it's a different environment now i don't know if i could start um being a being a music promoter now um because it's such a different territory yeah i, I would i literally would have no idea where, where to, to start, start. <laughs> and um you know when i first started in belfast uh, it was kind of the end of the 90s and the 90s had been like a huge dance scene in Northern Ireland. Mm. So you, you had people like uh, Phil Kieran and David Holmes and the, the guys at Shine were, you know, putting on like huge dance events and dance music was the thing in that Belfast was thing in, in the 90s, you know. And I guess people needed to shake off a lot of that baggage that was in their families and in, their, yeah, in the was, area. Yeah, it was... The, you know, the you, trauma you're, you're and talking mid 90s was kind of ceasefire time and and people wanted to have a good time mm -hmm. and wanted to party and mm -hmm. uh, then since then i've noticed little kind of waves of um so you'll get like a couple of years where rock music will be a big thing or you know folk music was huge for like three or four years and then you've you know your your kind of pop acts like um, Snow Patrol or Two Door Cinema Club you know and that that kind of peaks for a while, mm -hmm. um, and all these things just just kind of come and go and reflect kind of global trends or of whatever. Of course, and, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, in terms of being a, a promoter of uh, Americana and folk music in <laughs> Belfast at the minute, I would have not not a notion where to where to even start with it. I know. So. I hope that I hope that young aspiring promoters will will step up and and people that are thinking about putting on shows and doing things will have a crack at it because it is. It, I mean, it is good. It is good fun. I I've I've done a few things I ran. The folk club and, and the black box for a while and and ran gifted for a while too it is great fun to even just meeting meeting bands from from dublin and, and all around the yeah around the country but it is it's hard it's hard work it, it i think it's a lot more work than it's a lot more work than i realized mm. when i started um even just having a venue with a decent sound system is hard can be hard to find because a lot of venues don't actually have a system and you're forking out that extra money to bring the system in and that's that can always sort of affect the budget affect the thing as well there's there's no money in it there's definitely not there's, it's it's yeah it's not it's not a game for for someone who wants, who to, wants make to make, make a, money make, yeah. no make a profit but so and then you used to do you obviously you were djing for a while i mean you, you dj'd <laughs> at our shows and and you were doing that for you do to do that quite a bit. You've used to kind of sit, stop that as well. I I haven't really stopped that. I I haven't I haven't been booked as much as I used to. But uh, you know, if there are any uh, any bar managers or whatever out there listening, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm still available. Uh, that that was that was yeah again another kind of accidental thing that I fell into because yeah. being a promoter, no one wants dead air between no. between their acts, you know, and I was just, you know I I I'd, I'd make up a few like iTunes playlists back in the day um because you know i'm, I'm so old that spotify didn't exist um <laughs> but that role that role was always so important as well uh, yeah i i always consider it vitally important to you know set in the mood and and the tone of the night you know and then yeah. choosing those songs and um and you always, you nearly always and you always played local music as well almost, yeah i always always, always tried to play which was great for the city because you were always you go to a local show you you hear a local band, and then you hear, you hear yourself playing in the background uh, between between the sets, and it was always it was good for the bands, and it was good for good for everyone, and it, it continued to get kind of get that promotional free promotion out there, you know. Yeah, that that's exactly how that started. Was um, we would have maybe three or four shows booked in advance. And while people were at one show, we'd start playing music by the bands who were playing the next one yeah. or the one after that, and then you get a reputation for you know playing these these really good local artists, and people come to expect that at your shows, you know. So we would would have played um, like a, a lot of tunes by by local guys, but also then mixing that in with kind of classic folk and Americana, yeah. and, you know, and all, all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, and it was, it was just something that I I kind of grew to love, um, and it went from building those iTunes playlists to getting proper DJing software on the MacBook mm. and and learning. Next how thing to, you're DJing a wedding. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I yeah, I've absolutely no idea how any of those ever happened. But I I I DJed some absolutely great wedding parties. Yeah, and, I definitely um, been there a few. Pe- people would come down to shows and be like, I, I, you know, I love what you're doing, love the tunes. It's like getting married in six months, you know, do you, do you want to come down? Sure, and, uh, yeah. Um, fly to Vegas, do a wedding, fly home. 
yeah, that that, that I, never I, happened. I, I think maybe uh, I think maybe County Monaghan is about as far <laughs> as I met it for uh, one of the Emerald Armada guys uh, when yeah. But, um, one one really memorable one that I did was actually on the Belfast Barge. Uh, it was down yeah. there at the, at the waterfront, and um, so an Irish American couple. So a girl from uh, from Pennsylvania married a, a, a Belfast man, and I I knew I knew her quite well, and uh, they'd been to some shows and stuff. And mm-hmm. It's like we want really kind of Northern Irish American country folk rock and roll kind of wedding and i was like yeah that that sounds exactly like something that i could do um that's right up my street and came down and they were like right this is not your average wedding party we don't want rock the boat we don't want build me up buttercup we don't <laughs> want like all the nonsense that every terrible party ever plays i was like don't worry got it got this you know and um there's one one moment from that night where the father of the bride came over to where I was DJing, and you're always just thinking, "Oh no, what, what have I done? What, the bride. What, you know, what have, I, what have I done wrong? You know, what, what am I going to get shouted at for here?" Where he's like, "Oh, that's great music. You know, great music so far, which is always a, a bit of a, a double-edged <laughs> sword. You know, great music so far. Back, like, thanks, backhanded, like, backhanded yeah. compliment there." Um, he was like, "Would you have any Van Morrison?" And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got, you know, pr- pretty much everything Van Morris never released, you know, on a hard drive here. Um, and I was like, just just one thing, you know. And he's like, are you going to say that you're not going to play a brown-eyed girl? And I was like, that's exactly what I was going to say. He's like, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. He's like, don't want to hear that. It's absolute nonsense, you know. I don't know how it became his most popular song. Well. You know, so this guy's over from Pennsylvania getting drunk in in the hold of a boat floating yeah. on the lagon uh, and listening, listening to great kind of local music and then you know big kind of americana tunes and stuff and uh, he goes you know what i'd love to hear like yo no I've, I've, no i've never met you before so you know hit me with it what, what would you like he goes i would love to hear madam george i was like Oh, it's an absolute great tune, but it's gonna, you know, kill the mood at this this wedding party. party yeah. And he went, No, 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 no. And me and him just, just looked each other in the eyes and I went, Oh wait, you mean like the nineteen sixty eight, like live, really bluesy, you know, live from New York version of Madame George that's on all the early EPs? <laughs> and he went, That's the one and I was like, I love you, man. That's that, oh. that's brilliant. Let's play it and uh, you know, Father of the Bride up kinda of grooving away in, for in, in the barge and you're like that those little moments are just that that makes DJing and, yeah. and promoting shows and everything it makes it so worth much it. Fun. It makes it worth it. And he probably tell he probably still tells that story and talks about it to the family. And do you remember that time we went to Ireland, the wedding party on the boat? And yeah, do you remember that DJ who had red wine all down in front of his shirt? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And so um, you've kind of moved away from from that type of thing with your with your spare time. Obviously, you're. You're a, a web designer, kind of, kind of first and foremost, aren't you? That's kind of your day job, isn't um, it? Yeah, that, that's that's the real job. That's that's where the money always yeah, that was. Yeah, <laughs> that pays that pays the bills. Um, but that was a great that's a great skill to have when you're a promoter because you can knock up a poster in fifteen minutes and. It is, yeah. You know, you you you, you learn to be pretty proficient with with Photoshop and uh, and that kind of thing. And you, you're all in in this job. You're always sort of 
at or trying to be ahead of the game so mm. in terms of social media and everything we were always early adapters you know on the twitter in like 2009 yeah. facebook in 2010 and you know learning how to use those tools to to promote your shows and promote the artists and yeah um you know we I, I knocked up a few websites for bands and stuff as well because they didn't have a great online presence um so yeah it was, it was a nice skill to have you started this thing called wartime ni yep tell me a wee bit about about that and how it began and um kind of your ethos for it well wartime ni started out as a personal blog that i never thought anyone would, would read um and the, the the second world war is just something i've always been interested in from mm -hmm. from i was no age um my my grandfather who um passed away when i was five um used to tell stories and even from that age i can remember you know things that he would tell us around the house and uh you know he, he talked about escaping from prisoner of war camps and driving a tank around africa and all this stuff when you you know you're four or five years old it makes him sound like a superhero um and you know then even after he passed away my granny would have been watching the old black and white movies and you know things like a bridge too far would be on you know itv on a saturday afternoon and just sitting and it was just it was fascinating to watch and mm -hmm. you know to and to think that all of that stuff was within living memory and still for so many people is within you know living memory um you know these these are not events that happened hundreds of years ago um and, and we never really covered anything in school about it. You know, we did a little bit about, you know, Hitler's rise to, to power and mm -hmm. stuff, but we certainly never never talked about anything that happened locally. Um, and I, I didn't really know that Northern Ireland played any kind of role in, in the no Second war. World War yeah. until I was well into my 20s, maybe even early 30s. And I came across a couple of articles that, uh, talked about an old um, U.S. Army cemetery, which is up in Lisnabruni, and I was living out on uh, on Ravenhill Road, um, so not not too far away from there. And I just thought, you know what, I'm gonna gonna put my trainers on and take a, take a dander up uh, Craigie Glen and uh, have a look, have a look and see what's there. I went up and I was like there wasn't a lot there at the time um it was, it was big empty field with like really stunning views out over the over the city and uh two red brick pillars on the, on on the gate on the way in and on one of the pillars was a plaque that just said listen to bruni former united states army cemetery wow um and i was like that that just fascinated me to think of and then I became obsessed with finding out more about it and, you know, who were the men who were buried here mm -hmm. and what were they doing here? Like, I didn't know there were American troops in Northern Ireland at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was like, why were these people here? What were they doing here? Why they? Why were they buried here? Why are they not buried here anymore? Why is this site still remembered? Why is there a plaque up? And um, did a bit of research and I, I wrote, like a little article and, and put it on a on a personal blog and people started coming back and being like that's really interesting i never knew that 
and from then I went, well, what else happened that that people don't know about? I was yes. like, if this is just one site or one particular thing, um, how many more stories are there out there? And and the answer is thousands. I will never get through the half of them, you know. But um, and are people contacting you all the time with with the stories and? People contact me with stories and, and more more so with questions. Um, so yeah. I get a lot of emails, um, not from people in Northern Ireland, but I will get a lot of emails from uh, the United States and from England and uh, from from all across the world. Um, so yeah, the um, looking back at the the listener Bruni thing and then realizing there were so many other stories, and then um, I get contacted. By, by people from, from the United States, from Australia, from the UK, from all across the world. And they'll come to me and say, my grandfather or, or great-grandfather um, was in Northern Ireland during World War II. Wow. Um, I think he was at a camp in you know, County Tyrone. Can you tell me any, any more about it? Or I've come across this photo in the attic and it just has, you know, Sergeant whoever at Fintana on the back. And I've now realized Fintana is in Northern Ireland. What can <laughs> you can you can you tell me what regiment he was in or, or what he was doing there? Yeah. And from then I I just get I I really like to get into the details of of I, I don't so much like to cover the big events because they've been done. They you know, everyone knows about D Day, mm. everyone knows about you know Pearl Harbor and and all these huge, huge events that took place during the Second World War. But I I I just love delving into personal stories. You know, like a guy who was a a farmer from Minnesota, in you know and and how he came to be in Northern Ireland and the friendships he made and the bars he drank in here <laughs> and you know, the the women he romanced while he was over and you know all that stuff is is fascinating. So. On my website, you're you're much more likely to come across stories of, you know, of, of people who were in a road accident mm. during World War Two, or, or people who, who you know, a, a woman from County Armagh who married a man from New York. You know, that's that's the stuff that interests me, rather than yeah, know, the big events. It's ge- the, the, the nitty gritty kind of real life, real people, real people stories. Yeah, that that's that's real history for me. You know, that, that that's where my interest lies. And it, you know, watching how the site has grown, it's it's clearly where other people's interest lies as well. You yeah. know, and, and those are the, the stories that that get the most attention, and those are the things that people contact me about. You know, I I never get emails being like, hey, could you tell me more about the Belfast Blitz? Um. We've obviously covered that on the website, you know, fairly extensively. It was a it was a huge event that happened in 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 Northern Ireland, and um, but I'm much more likely to get people contacting me um, with a very personal, yeah, um, like kind of one on one story, you know, about an individual mm. rather than a, a huge event. And how do you go about then? How do you go about finding out information when someone someone contacts you? Um, is there is there a lot of is there a lot of documentation around? There there is yeah um there a lot more than you would think and there's there's a lot more actually online than y- you might you might imagine mm. um but it's all so fragmented 
and you'll get little bits and pieces all over the place. So, for example, if I was researching an, an air crash, um, you you will put the, the, the kind of plane model and the date maybe into Google, and you'll find a website that just lists plane crashes in 1942 mm. and it'll have the, the the name of the plane and the model or the the serial number and no other information other than that and the date and they're like okay i've got the serial number now so you can put the serial number into google and that'll bring up more articles then and you oh, might find yes. something that had the names of the, the crew or passengers on it but no other information so i i, I kind of like to take all of that stuff and, and put it together and make it into a nice accessible readable article where, mm. where someone can actually come and in one go read all about all that information yeah. that you've pieced together over the space of a month or yeah and uh, you know outside of the the web as well you've got good good resources like uh prony uh public records office in northern ireland um they have an absolute ton of information um down there and you know it's it's free um mm. Uh, the the only drawback with with places like that is that they only seem to be open during the week, uh, during when office hours. So, <laughs> yeah, for it, it it's really inaccessible for people who full time jobs. Full time jobs. Um, which again is is one of the reasons why I enjoy writing these articles and putting them online and making information readily available. Yeah. Um, because you know so much of that information that's in in the public records office. If you're not from Belfast and you're not available between the hours, hours of nine to five, during it's hard to week, access. Yeah, you're you're never going to find that stuff out. Yeah. Um, and there there are a lot of guys um, who um, run kind of museums and 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 things that a lot of people still don't know about. So there's there's a Northern Ireland War Memorial Museum uh, down on Talbot Street in Belfast. Um, again, they're only open kind of during the week and during office yeah, hours. I've been past, I've been past it a number of times and I've looked in, but never thought of taking a dander. Yeah, and they, they've they've a couple of really good exhibitions kind of downstairs, but um, as well as that, they've extensive archives of of things that you know you can request to go in and and look at. Wow. Um, there's there's a museum up in Ballyclare called War Years Remembered. Okay. Um, which has an absolute ton of stuff, and uh, like, um, we're talking like World War Two era vehicles and everything up there, and they've recently uh, launched a, a exhibition on uh, Blair Main, um, who's kind of uh, let's call him an infamous uh war hero, uh from Northern Ireland, um, who was one of the founding members of the SAS. Right. Um, so that that's that's a big thing that they're they're pushing at the minute, and you've got the Ulster Aviation Society out in um, out in uh, the old Mays Prison, um, which itself was a former World War Two um, airfield. So they're actually based in two um, hangars that date back to the nineteen forties. Amazing. And you can go in there, and they've um, I don't I don't know how many aircraft they have, but you just go in. It's hangars full of of aircraft and replica aircraft and they have Amazing. a replica Spitfire um, but also they have uh, Wildcat which is an American fighter plane and the Wildcat itself was crashed on Christmas Eve 1944 um, in Loch Ney and Ulster Aviation Society um, 
drag, dragged it up with help from army engineers and, and brought it up out of the lock and restored it. And that that was in 1984, and they're still going, still rebuilding that plane wow. now. Um, and um, it's, it's one of those kind of stories that the people who are interested in kind of wartime stuff from Northern Ireland um, really like because they managed to track down the pilot. So the pilot survived. Um, wow. the crash and in 1984 Ulster Aviation Society managed to track him down in the States uh, we're just like hey remember that plane you crashed in <laughs> 1944 we, we've just lifted it out and the guy who was called Peter Locke um, he passed away in 2017 but prior to that he'd been over many times to Ulster Aviation Society and, and would do talks and things yeah. around Northern Ireland about, um, about the time he crashed his, his plane in Loughnane and um, actually being on, on Christmas Eve, he was on his way up to um, a Christmas party in Derry. <laughs> I was wearing his nice suit under his like flight overalls and everything. Yeah. And um, or he was wearing like his, his officer's uniform, um, you know, underneath his flying suit. Yeah. And uh, crashed into the lock. And it was an intentional crash into the lock. He, he lost power in one of his engines. And had a full tank of fuel because he'd only just taken off from Long Cash. Uh, and he thought, if I come down on land, I'm done for. This whole thing's just going to go up. But if I come down on water, it, it's a much safer option. So he managed to find his way to, uh, I think it's, it's Port Morlock. It's just a little, little, um, but kind of bit of water off, uh, just off Loch Ness. Yeah. Uh, came in over Port Morlock and, and, and crashed into the water. And. There was a device on the old life jackets that secreted this yellow dye um, so that if, if an airman crashed at sea or, or in water, yeah, um, the rescue teams would be able to see the yellow in the water or follow that kind of trail and, and find find the person. So his, his life jacket secreted all of this yellow dye and ruined his officer's uniform <laughs> that he had on the, he was picked up by um, I can't remember the guy's name now, but a, a guy who's he's he's still alive and well today up up around those parts, um, and he re- he was a twelve year old boy who saw the plane crashing and he ran back and got his dad and wow. being you know out on, on the sh- on the shore of Loch Ness they had a boat and they took their little rowboat out and uh, picked him up picked this guy up and you know obviously you know, are you okay you know is it, you know anything broken any injuries and he's like i've got a christmas party to go to up in Derry." they're like that's it yeah <laughs> that's all they had to say and that was it and, and, and then took his took his flight suit off and looked at his office uniform it was yellow this is ah look at the state of me and he went up and when it went to his christmas party that night and right. got absolutely m- mercilessly slagged off by uh, everyone there for the state <laughs> of his officer's uniform and you're just like, yeah, those those are the stories. Yeah, that, forget that I forget how just you know? crashed a plane. Oh, that's really interesting. And what other? I mean, you see, so you run the website, and do you do do you do events? Do you do do you do talks? What what else kind of? Um, how else does that? What else does that look like? Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of talks. Um, just last year, I did did one with the um, uh, Eastside uh, Visitor Centre out in East Belfast and Newton Orange Road at C.S. Lewis Square there. Yes. Um, and they brought me in to talk about uh, the shipyards uh, during World War Two, 
Um, so by 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 that time, Harland Wolf was the only shipyard in in Belfast, and I think they they made well over a hundred vessels that saw use during during the Second World War. Wow. And again, it's one of those things that in Belfast we we we, we like to spin the wrong narrative about things, and all anyone knows about Harland Wolf is that they made the Titanic. You know, and it's like let's celebrate our greatest failure. You know, it's like, yeah, the you know, museums and everything now about a ship that sank. It's um, amazing, isn't it? When, you, when you start digging through the archives and start reading stories and realize that they they made you know sh- really famous ships like HMS Belfast, which is still you know uh, floating on the on the Thames there in London. And you can go in and look around HMS Belfast, and that was built by Harlan Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, fired some of the first shots on D-Day from from HMS Belfast. They had people like Churchill and Eisenhower aboard, and those those. You just are, don't hear these stories. They're, they're stories that just aren't told. And um, I only recently discovered that, as as well as ships, Harlan Wolf were making tanks, wow. and and everything. You know they. There's there's photos actually up on the website of of tanks that that were built in Belfast, and uh, then after the Blitz they moved their production out to Carrickfergus. Um, so if if anyone's ever out in Carrickfergus and, and driving through the town, you will see yeah, on the left hand side, uh, yeah, a Churchill tank, uh, sitting up there, and that that tank was built in Carrickfergus, Carrickfergus, um, by by Harland Wolf workers. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we just don't. We just don't. We just don't know enough about our our history. I guess we just get caught up in. You get so caught up in the troubles that you kind of forget what was before. Yeah, you can't even really imagine what was before, especially yeah, if you were it's, born. It's the, the know, Titanic, the Troubles, and Game of Thrones is uh, <laughs> the, the 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 trinity of uh, of things that we like to talk about here. But you know, and I appreciate that that um a lot of the history is is tough to talk about and you know being from northern ireland everything always has that little you know which side which side we on or Mm -hmm. you know that the kind of elements of sectarianism that kind of creep into everything but i don't think the second world war should be a discriminatory thing those are, are tough conversations to have and things that need to be resolved and I'm not in a position to you know to, to make any judgments on those um, and it's not the area of history that I look into so for me wartime NI is not divisive it's not sectarian it's not one side of the community or the other it's you know, it's the facts and it's history and it's, and it's, it's history and it affected everyone and as as a friend of mine said a couple of years ago, you know when when the Luftwaffe flew over um, uh, over Belfast and dropped their bombs over the course of four or five nights, um, they weren't looking to see what flag you had outside your house. You know they mm. were they were mainly aiming for the shipyards. But if if they happened to overrun your, you know you were going to mm. get a bomb dropped on you regardless of who you were. Of course, yeah. And it, you know Protestants, Catholics, everyone signed up, everyone enlisted. Um, Northern Ireland didn't have conscription, so no one from here was forced to fight in the Second World War. Right. They all volunteered. Um, again, the conscription thing came down to the the, the kind of Protestant Catholic thing, and um, it was um, the the British government's decision to not bring in conscription here. Um, 
to um, kind of appease nationalists um, by going, you, we're not going to force you to fight, you know, but if you want, if you would like to join the army or the air force or the navy, you know, mm-hmm. that that would be a great thing. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of people did, and it's it's, it's a fact that that even from the south, um, like tens of thousands of of people from the the south of Ireland, um, enlisted to serve in World War Two as well. And um, little little fact being that um, Northern Ireland's only Victoria Cross winner was um, a nationalist uh, from North or Northwest <laughs> Belfast, James McGuinness. Wow. Um, one of Victoria Cross for um, uh, his actions in, in submarine duties out in out in Japan. Wow. And that's you know that's something that I think I feel like certain communities try and hijack these these things and are like you know this is our thing and and wearing a poppy is our thing and celebrating this is our thing and celebrating that is is their thing and I I it, it disgusts me you know yeah. and I. I feel like it's a shared history. It happened to everyone, and yeah, share um, it, share it, yeah. and, and 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 look at it for what it is. Do you have any other stories from that you've heard? You've heard from around the area? Oh, there, there are. Oh, there are so many. Um, it's um, what are some I, of your favorite? I w- I was actually looking into uh, your neck of the woods up in the uh, Makara there, uh-huh. and um, they, um, I, they you know, again that this is this is how I come across stories. Because I'm just sitting here going, oh, I'm going to talk to Andrew Farmer next week. Um, oh, he's from up around Macarah. I wonder did anything happen up there? You know, I <laughs> I don't know all this stuff. You know, it, it's it's research and it's stuff that needs to be done. And, yeah. Um. So I I I go away and I I I start looking up records and stuff, and I'm like, of course, stuff happened in Macarah. Like stuff happened everywhere. Mm. Um. There's a, a big influx of uh, United States Army. Um, up around that, up around that neck of the woods, right. and like I said, when when I started researching, it was through a U.S. Army thing. It's the old cemetery up on the to Bruni. Yeah. And during during the Second World War, 148 men were buried up there. Um, I should also say that that since I first visited there, Lisburn and Castlereagh Council have done a fantastic job of marking the area and there's now a proper monument um okay. like an obelisk with all the names of all the men who were buried there wow. and it's it's really well kept it's it's very respectful it's it's a really nice place to visit yeah um and they they raise the american flag on the fourth of july every year up on the up on the top of the hill and everything wow um but yeah so that that was that was my first kind of introduction to it and these 148 men and i was like why would why were they here? You know, and discovered some of them died in air crashes. Some of them died in road accidents. Some of them died of pneumonia and the flu. You know, mm. and while they were based here, um, and I had no idea that America, the American army, was ever in in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and this is this is when I'm in my early thirties. You know, discovering this, and for a lot of people who come on to my website, they're discovering it for the first time as well. Um, but in fact, three hundred thousand American troops passed through Northern Ireland in the space of two years. That's insane. So between nineteen forty-two and forty-four, um, the first ones landed down at Dufferin Dock in uh, in Belfast. There on the twenty-sixth of January, nineteen forty-two, and they chose a guy called Melbourne Henke 
uh, to be the face of the American army. Um, but as with all good PR stories, there were probably 200, 300 American troops already ashore um, who you know got off earlier boats, but the he was put forward by his commanding officers to be the the kind of young, good-looking uh, farm boy from uh, from the Midwest. Yeah, and um, he he was the one who officially stepped ashore and got his photo in the Belfast Telegraph and uh, got became like world famous. Captain as, Captain America, basically. Yeah, Captain America. Um, not only was he the first to land in Northern Ireland, but this was the first U.S. troops to enter Europe during the Second World War. Wow. Um, so the, the you know Pearl Harbor had only been on the seventh of December forty one, and this was the end of January forty two, and this was America's first stepping point into the yeah. Second World War. So they came they came to Northern Ireland. They trained for Operation Torch in North Africa. They trained for D Day. Um, you know, learnt learnt their their kind of tactics and and practiced in their tanks and things all out around the hills and, and valleys of Northern Ireland. What sort of areas? I know I know there's there's a, there was an old runway down near Tomb, isn't there? There is, yeah. There's a big big airfield at Tomb. Um, lots of the buildings are still still standing. Um, out around there. Um, I I went out on a on a guided tour actually. Um, not one that I was given, just uh one that was led by uh, a group from Antrim um, and I went along with them and while we were on the tour so we're just just dr- driving around in the bus and pointing out buildings that used to be a toilet block uh, that used to be the control center that used to be a kitchen that used to be a canteen wow. um, and while we were there one of the guys taking the tour got a text from a farmer who was pulling down a wall in one of his cattle sheds and he chipping away at the plaster and uh, took it off and got down to the brickwork and there was a mural that had been painted by the United States Air Force um, on the wall of this old cattle shed. So he he was then you know keen to know what was this what was it what was this building you know why is there a U.S. Air Force wow. mural you know underneath the plaster and in, in my cow shed Amazing. and um, yeah there's you know other other airfields I think Northern Ireland had. 20, 27 or 28 airfields, which seems crazy no. to think <laughs> and about. And now we've only got, what, two and a half? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, all, all the airports that we have now, uh, the the international up at Aldergrove, that was an RAF base. City Airport out at Sydenham was an RAF base. Um, the airfields up in, in, in Derry, um, two, two out in um, Castle Archdale and Killadees out in um, Fermanagh as well. And you know sites like the maze and tomb, mm. um, and and outside of that, look, so many villages and towns just had, you know, where I'm from in Portadown had a huge influx of of troops during the Second World War. Um, yeah. Just down the road from where I went to school, there there was a prisoner of war camp, um, for, like for German prisoners. Wow. And then you find that out, and you're like, well, you know. How how were they treated, and you know what what did the locals think about these Germans coming into town, and yeah. and you actually find out that for the most part, Northern Irish people were really nice to everyone during the Second World War. Mm. Um, the American troops spoke very highly of of the Irish. Um, the Germans who were prisoners of war, the Italians who were prisoners of war, say they were treated exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, you know, it was that thing of when you're a prisoner of war, you're you're no longer the enemy. 
you're you're out of the and, and you're being cared for and take and yeah, yeah. You're, you're being well looked after and and people from from the communities here respected that these were just 18 19 year old kids doing a job the same way as you know they found a lot of kind of common ground with older people here who maybe had a son or a daughter the same age the same age and maybe their 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 kid was off in france or off in germany or the netherlands yeah. fighting so they wanted someone they, to look they after they, they would want someone to look after their kid yeah the way, the way they, they looked after exactly the, yeah the people it's really interesting and is there are there any particular particular characters that you find out about that you're interested in or there uh, there are just so many um <laughs> it's and, and like going back to um going back to kind of like the music and the art stuff when, when you're dealing with a huge topic like world war Two, you it, it it encompasses every walk of life you know and, yeah. and, and you find those people as well who are musicians and who are artists um so a, a really famous um artist called uh frank mundy coombs right um who's a fantastic painter and 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 uh, was from london and had art studios o- over in england and everything and you know he he still has works hanging in, in museums um across the uk maybe maybe elsewhere as well um but he joined the um he joined the royal navy right the break of, of world war Two, and he was working on hms caroline um which is still docked down in down in belfast here and, and you can go and visit it and a tour around the ship it's it's an old world war one ship um which was kind of out of use but used as a shore base during the second world war so this guy fantastic artist was just happened to be there during the belfast blitz wow. and was killed in the blitz and mm. is buried in belfast city cemetery uh one of the interesting things about frank mundy coombs is that uh he was openly gay which is a, a hugely um, it's it's just it, it wasn't talked about in the nineteen forties. Yeah. You know, it was illegal for a start wow. back then. Um, but he had a he had a partner who who was another artist over in England, and it it didn't seem to be. I don't know in his military career if it was a if it was a big secret or anything, but yeah. um, certainly from from the research that I've re- I've read, um, he he seemed to be uh, out and proud and. It's you know those stories about real people, yeah, and living their, their lives and their lives, and then the the kind of differences between you know in some ways we've we've come so far since mm. the nineteen forties, and in other ways we we, we haven't, haven't come really that far at all. all. Yeah, that's really interesting. You told me a story about 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 a farmer that had a painting. Yeah, Do you remember that one. Uh, Someone gave him a painting and he wasn't allowed to. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember that one? But yeah, that it was. Um, yeah, I, I I tell so many stories. You see, you see, when I start talking, I, yeah, I, I I'm stuff. glad this is being recorded because I'll actually <laughs> be able to remember what what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, this it it wasn't a painting this former was given. It was a photograph, and what happened? 
was now i don't know if if any of this is fact i've never been able to track this story down in the records for reasons that will become apparent we don't we don't care we don't care about the facts we're we're, we're we want to hear we want to hear stories we want to be entertained <laughs> but i was told this story on on a bus tour by a guy from uh from, from out in county tyrone and his story was that a friend of the family had this house and during the second world war a german uh soldier had uh, come down a parachute and landed to do some reconnaissance around the area which is entirely believable you know that's it's something they did in other places um so this guy had landed in county Tyrone and sought out um people who he knew or he he knew he could be affiliated with and uh, his job was to go around all the air bases which we talked about earlier and photograph them and plot them on maps and take that back to germany and uh, so he had all this high-tech equipment with him for taking the photos for you know the kind of all the mm. documentation stuff they would have and he was taken in by a family in in county Tyrone. um because they, they just kind of saw him wandering about the place and were like, if you're caught, you're a dead man, you know. It's like, you know, we'll we'll hide you for a while, you know, but, uh, you know, just say nothing. And the guy used their car and, and uh, obviously quite a well-off family in the, in the 40s, you know, where he, so they drove him around and kind of concealed him for however long he was mm-hmm. here. And they're like, right, we'll do this on one condition. It's like we've got this old family photo. Uh, it's a really tattered, old, old, battered photo, you know, from maybe the the nineteen twenties or whatever. And they're like, we'd like you to use all of your fancy equipment to make a nice big, uh, enlarge the photo, mm-hmm. and you know, make it nice so Restore. that we can frame it. And yeah, I was like, right, okay, you keep me safe. You drive me around the air bases, and uh, I'll, you know, use all my technology here to enlarge this photo and make it nice for you. Wow. Um, and he's like, but you can't put it up until after the war. He's like, regardless of who wins, he's like, this photo and this story can't be told until after the war. And the guy who owned the house was like, yep. That's fine. Yep, you do the work. We we'll hide the photo away until this war is over. And it, you know those those stories are just mind blowing to mm. think that this is an enemy, an enemy soldier, just having this beautiful one on one relationship with a family. You know, wow. and, and having the chat and stuff. And and he did it. And he enlarged the photo using using whatever equipment he had over with him. And he rolled it up and put it in like a little tube and yeah. they hid it. In the in like an alcove in the in the wall, and then people forgot about it because the war went on and on and on, and you know it's that kind of thing that you always hear of, like people said, "All oh, be over by Christmas," you know. Yeah. No one expected it the last six years, mm. and the war dragged on and on and on. People forgot about this this photo, and it was only discovered years and years and years later, like maybe the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties. Somebody was doing some work around the house, yeah, and uncovered this thing hidden behind a wall, and they're like, "Oh God, yeah, do you remember?"
so yeah, my my interest in, in World War Two, as I said, um, it's all, all stemmed from my granda and and these kind of superhero stories that uh, he used to tell about about driving tanks and, and escaping from prisoner of war camps, and that, that was stuff I'd only ever seen in films. And uh, being a good Northern Irish man, you know, I always assumed he'd put put a wee creative spin on his stories, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> I was like, these these are great stories. Never crossed my mind that you know this was real life. This yeah. was what he'd done, you know, and uh, grown up hearing all these things and, and thinking this is I, I couldn't comprehend the fact that even someone in my family had been to Africa and India and Palestine. You know, it's just these were places I'd never heard of and certainly had never been or, or had any any hope of ever going to yeah. you know and and, and, to and think he'd been that, there in the 40s and he yeah he was there in the 30s and 40s you know and he had done seven years military service before the second world war even broke out wow he, he was serving in india and palestine and uh, actually if if family stories are to be believed played international field hockey for india he, <laughs> he was based in india for long enough to to play hockey for their uh, international team amazing um, so yeah, those, those are records that I'd love to track down and uh, just, just find out. But yeah, he's a keen sportsman, played hockey, football, boxing for the regiment, and um, had always told these stories about escaping from two two prisoner of war camps. Wow. Not just, like one's just not enough. Was that enough? You know, um, it's like yeah, your your granddad escaped from two prisoner of war camps, and I was like, aye, of course he did. You know, that's a great great story. Found. Uh, uh, Clearing, clearing out in, in my granny's house and we came across letters and postcards uh, mm. sent from these prisoner of war camps wow. um, my granny had received in 19, one in 1943 one in 1945 and yeah like reading reading back through archives and war diaries and stuff now and I'm like oh yeah wow this is all true you know that um, one, one of the escapes was uh not 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 so much an escape as just uh, a moment of good luck um where he was he was in a prisoner war camp in Italy in 1943 and the Italians um obviously allied with the uh the the, the Nazis at the time under under Mussolini um but they surrendered in 1943 so the the Italian uh war ended in in 1943 and the Italians surrendered, and their army just gave up. Wow. And the Italian guards at the prisoner war camp just walked away. And the uh, Germany had occupied parts of Italy at the time, but German troops couldn't arrive there mm -hmm. at the time. So it was going to take them two days to get the prisoner war camp. Um, so they so just left in between times. Over over a thousand men just walked out while wow. <laughs> um, while the guards had left. Yeah. Um, so that there's like a mass escape, but the thing was they were still in occupied territory and still fighting a war. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the men kind of took on like partisan roles and and lived in the lived in the hillsides and and took shelter with uh, farmers and and um, did did bits and pieces of work for them, you know, around the farm and the, f the farmers would uh, feed them and water them and. Uh, you know, and and look after them because they were like, right, we've surrendered, our war is over. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're not the enemy anymore. Um, and and they looked after these guys. So my granddad and uh, like a couple other guys that he was with, 
kind of roamed about the Italian hillside and tried <laughs> to find tried to find their way back to Eat their nice regiments or their battalions <laughs> or tried to find where the army was at the time, yeah. you know, and and can you imagine doing that? And like in, in 1943, you know, yeah. it's not just you, it's not just a case of turning on your mobile and no. seeing where your friends have checked in or anything, you know. Um, so they're using using all this underground information and and you know talking to people in the resistance movements and and trying to find their way back to back to the front. And eventually, he was recaptured um, by by the Germans and and put in another prisoner of war camp in uh, in Germany. And I've no idea how he got out of that one. I suspect he may have got out at the end of the war because he was still writing from there in 1945. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that wasn't so much an escape as uh, just the the war the is war, over war and uh, every, everybody's free to go. Um, but one of the things that I found in his um, or, or in the in the kind of documents and things that my my grandmother had kept was. Uh, christmas card that he had been sent in 1946 um so it's like a charity um, red cross christmas card and it was sent from south africa uh -huh. um, from port elizabeth in cape town and read read this christmas card and it was just a very nice you know hey alec uh hope you're having a great christmas hope the family's keeping well kind of thing and he's like, oh, what I wouldn't give for another game of volleyball in uh, Camp 4B. Oh. Um, and signed Harry Rose Ennis. Wow. So it's like even something as small as that provides mm. you with so much information. Because you're like, right, that's the camp he was in. That camp was in Germany. And that's what they did to pass that's, the time. That's, what they, that's how they passed their time. You know, they were obviously keeping active and, and trying to keep healthy mm. and whatever. So I started like an online thing of trying to find either Harry Rose Innes or someone related to him. Yeah. And the first thing that I discovered was that Harry Rose Innes had written a book. Wow. Um, about his... His um, time in that camp. His, his time, not in that camp, but he had written about an escape from a prisoner of war camp in uh, Italy. And him and a couple of guys had, had got on a train. Um, so they'd all feigned illness. Um, <laughs> to be brought to the local hospital. Oh, um, so from the, yeah, and I I don't know what illness they made up, but they were all on this uh, <laughs> this train going for medical treatment, mm -hmm. and jumped out the windows of the train. Man. Um, so Harry Rose in this book's called the the uh, Po Valley Break. So wow. in the Po Valley there in Central Italy, and they escaped from this train, and it's it's a fantastic. It's, it's kind of semi-fictionalized you know it's it's a yeah. novel that he's written um i think he wrote it in either late 60s early 70s and it's it's crazy reading that and thinking you know one of the guys in this novel might be my grandfather mm. you know and uh, yeah you just don't know you, you don't know he, he's given the kind of gen generic names to everyone you know and yeah. uh, but it's, it's an absolutely astonishing read you know just his time in you know trying to get back to the war you know yeah. and and his time in italy and and living with these farmers yeah. and, and working with the underground movement and that dedication to you know you think you've probably been through enough but but that dedication to keep going and you're already there so what else would you do but go back to the but go back to the front yeah go back to your friends and then do do the job that you were you were there to do you yeah. know that's why they were there there was never any talk of them 
going home or you know yeah, I'm, I'm in Italy how do I get back to yeah. Northern Ireland or in Harry Rosinus's case back to South Africa no it was like they wanted to go back to their friends and that was you know they, they weren't just work colleagues you know on, on the front they, they were your family they were your friends they were the people that you saw mm. every day and you know ate with washed with you know the these were people who hadn't seen their their actual families that's in, probably in years. The motivation of a lot of why a lot of people thought they were fighting for their friends. Yep. Too. And um, you know, you know, finding finding out those people with with connections to my grandfather and you know things that, that clearly went on beyond the war. You know, and, and the fact that people were still years later sending Christmas cards and yeah. you know to each other and you're like those. Just, it's not it wasn't easy to to maintain those mm. connections in, in the 40s and 50s you know from the other side of the world of you know you were and do you have his medals and stuff i do have my grandfather's medals i've got three medals um um from him. so the the war medal in 1939 the 45 star and the africa star um yeah. and yeah they're they're i'm very proud of them and uh very very uh very very proud to have them and you know it's it's a nice kind of tangible kind of tactile thing that yeah. you know it's not just a story you know it's yeah i mean you, you you're part you're part of something you're part of the story you're you know he's your relative he's he's someone you know you know and or, you, or you knew you might have been only f what five five yeah. five when he yeah so i you know as, as a person i didn't know him incredibly well you know yeah but you know him through the stories you know him through the, the stories and, and to have those medals that you can hold in your hand and be like you know this is this is who he was um yeah and his his father actually my my great-grandfather who i never knew uh won a distinguished conduct medal in in the first world war mm -hmm. um and was presented with a silver watch by the the townspeople of Portadown, <laughs> um, and I have that watch. Oh wow! And it's still in in full working order. You can still wind it up. It keeps good time, and Amazing. it's engraved on the back with you know presented to uh, uh, Corporal Joshua Leggett, um, hmm. you know, in recognition of his distinguished conduct medal from the from the townspeople of Portadown. You'd probably be really surprised if you could find if you find out all the things that people around the country have. Oh yeah, stashed away on top of cupboards or in a wardrobe or or sitting on the mantelpiece, you'd be you'd be shocked probably. I I get you know I get the odd email from time to time being like, oh we found this thing in our house. I believe it's vaguely related to the Second World War. Can you tell me what it is oh. or you know and you know some of the things are great. You get like you know all kind of medical boxes from the U.S. Army and things yeah. and, and you know soldiers were great ones for just giving things away to people. You know right. that. Yeah. Um, and the the number of um, well, one of the things that, that women, not just in Northern Ireland, but like all across the UK, would do would be collect cap badges, right? Um, from let, let's just say soldiers that they were friends with, <laughs> and uh, so it was it was like you know the the notch on your bedpost kind of thing of you know how many cap badges you had, oh, wow. and you know these things still turn up in people's houses, and and you know are they're not going to be worth you know much financially you know they're they're yeah but know, the stories they tell but, but are, the stories are, behind them are are just great and um did you see that we that, that show they made a, a while back moy bag 
Oh, the uh, my mother and other strangers. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's the one. It was really interesting. Was, um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting show. Um, very heavily fictionalized, but uh, just just a great a great story, you know. And um, yeah. it was and all it, the local towns around because it was all the local towns around Mid Ulster. That's why I find it yeah quite all, fascinating. Macker felt I think all, featured all around Loch Ness. Yeah, and there, there were there was a huge military presence out there and. Um, yeah. To one of one of the criticisms that that show got from historians was that there wasn't enough um, military. So oh, with right. the restrictions of things like you know, the the special effects that they mm-hmm. could budget for and stuff, they would quite often have like you know a plane flying over, and then historians are going, "No, this was like one of the busiest airfields in in Europe at wow. the time. You know, there should be you know every every few Jeep, minutes there Jeeps, should be Jeeps planes, everywhere, planes, planes everywhere, taking off and coming down and." Dances and parties. And yeah. Um, oh yeah, the dances and parties were were wild. Like the uh, you know they they would they would bring in busloads of uh, Northern Irish women. Mm. A friend of mine is the, the property manager for Kilwater House. Oh yes, yeah. I think it featured quite heavily throughout um, throughout that time as well. And I think the army took over that took over the house. They did, yeah. And uh, that was that was a real big space space they used to. Did, yeah, and I think um, I, I around that neck of the woods as well as the Americans um, towards the end of the war, they had a lot of Belgian troops. Right. Um, so that this is a, a not a widely known story at all, even amongst kind of World War Two historians and stuff. But the Belgian army reformed in Northern Ireland wow. um, towards the end of World War Two. So as Belgium was occupied by by the Nazis and. Um, a lot of young men kind of fled and were were freedom fighters and and that and a lot of them made their way to the UK and those who made their way to the UK eventually decided to reform the Belgian National Army and their training grounds were all in Northern Ireland so um, the kind of progression of stuff in Northern Ireland was British Army regiments came here in like 1940 41 and used used kind of areas for training and built camps of Nissen huts and, and mm-hmm. used a lot of those like stately homes like Kilwater House and um, places like the Argery out in, out in County Armagh, mm-hmm. uh, Wilmont House there in, in Dunmurray, um, you know, big, big kind of big homes like that where the officers would, would take over the the main residence and then the grounds would be used for Nissen huts and tents where, where all the troops stayed. Um, so the the, the British Army were the first to use those, and then 1942, the American Army arrived, mm-hmm. and by that stage, all the British guys were off at the front fighting, so the Americans come in 42 to 44, and they trained and, and lived and were based here, and then they all went off to North Africa and um, and over to Normandy uh, for D-Day, and then in 1945, um, the Belgians came over, and this was something I only started looking into last year, and I thought, you know, okay, Belgians coming over, there's gonna be a few of them. That was like four or five thousand Belgian troops wow. in Northern Ireland, uh, with quite a quite a heavy presence around like Carrick, Fergus, and Larne, uh-huh. and um, they they basically they reformed their army here, and the British army retrained them and gave them uniforms, and they the there's still such a strong connection between the Belgian army and, and Northern Ireland <laughs> that the infantry uh, battalions all have a green shamrock on their well, on their badges. 
That's fascinating. Someone I met someone a wee, a wee man one day in, in, a, in a cafe, and he was telling me about the Polish. Mm-hmm. And he said the Polish were 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 very instrumental in the war, and 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 based in Northern Ireland, come from Northern Ireland as well. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there. Um, I've actually been doing quite a bit of work in the last year with a group um, called For Your Freedom and Ours, uh-huh. who. Their their entire mandate is talking about the the shared history between Northern Ireland and Poland during that's the Second wow, World War. That's fascinating. Um, so they go out around community groups, um, and it's, it's 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 all about shared history and about um, it was set up in the kind of wake of those those kind of racist or xenophobic attacks yeah. from maybe two three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go out and talk to um, you know, a lot of kind of working class areas and, and educate them about the fact that the history know, this is this is what the Polish people did for us this is what they did when they were over here and um, so yeah two two Polish um, Air Force squadrons were were based here in 1943 um, uh, what happened was again when Poland was occupied a lot of the young men left and then fled to the UK yeah. and a lot of them joined the RAF um and there were initially some difficulties obviously with like language barriers and stuff but these polish guys were really experienced fighters mm-hmm. uh, fighter pilots much more so than the guys who were being trained by the raf yeah uh so they were like elite aerial combatants and wow. uh, were were highly respected in the, in the royal air force and their time in northern ireland was was more a time of rest and recuperation um, when they came over here, so they'd already served during the Battle of Britain, mm-hmm. and uh, I think three hundred three squadron had the most kills in in the Battle of Britain. So this Polish squadron were like the had the highest success rate of of any RAF squadron in the Battle of Britain, and eventually them and and three one five squadron both came to Ballyhalbert, um, out there on the the Ards Peninsula, and um, yeah, struck up like a great rapport with the the local community and you know they weren't here for long but the impact that they made was was huge and and you know the fact that people still talk about them and and people still want to know about about that history of of when they were here and you know a few of them stayed on after the war um the the problem with poland after the second world war was that it then became a soviet occupied state and a lot of the guys didn't want to go back home and, and live under the kind of soviet re- regime either yeah um so they, they would have stayed in the uk and, and a couple of them stayed out around bally halbert and you know that's so, so you know they, these guys are now going around and, and telling these community groups that you know polish people living in northern ireland isn't a new thing yeah it's, it's not just something that that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years you know yes yeah. and perhaps perhaps maybe the people in Poland know the history between Ireland and Poland, and that's what favors them coming here in, mm-hmm. the, in the first place. Yeah, there, there are definitely a lot of connections, and uh, you know, one of the guys that, that runs this uh, for your freedom and ours um, project is is a Polish guy, um, and he's he's been living in Belfast for maybe maybe ten years or so now, and is just you know so so proud of these stories. And yeah. And you go out around different places. The uh, the Ulster Aviation Society at the Maze there actually has an exhibition running at the minute, um, specifically related to the Polish squadrons. Um, 
and you know telling the stories of those individual men and and what they did while they were here and and what they did during the war and um their their kind of connections to northern ireland but also you'll you'll get little things across the country that uh that that just kind of reinforce the you know the, those connections um like out in the Bearsbridge road in in east belfast there's a huge mo- mural of a Polish uh, airborne um, soldier um, and his unit dropping down into Arnhem in 1944. Wow. And again, that was done by, or possibly inspired by uh, members of the Polish community living mm-hmm. in the area um, after after been a couple of uh, kind of xenophobic kind of hate crimes, basically, you mm-hmm. know, and people being like no we're, we're proud of our connections it's to the polish to see, community it's great to see people making a difference and 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 getting out there and doing doing something yeah and that's you know that that's hopefully what what i can i can start those conversations you know with the wartime ni website and yeah. you know you're, you're bringing people together and you're not you're not dividing people you're you're bringing them together with a shared history mm. and you know, telling telling stories and, and recounting things that are historical fact and great stories and you know things that we you know we we should be proud of you know and and yeah. th- those those kind of things that are often overlooked in uh, uh, you know it's certainly with World War Two, um, Northern Ireland played a, a huge vital role in so many different areas, not just with the building of ships and the training of troops and stuff, but in terms of uh, um, the American army, segregation was a was a huge thing um, right up until the 1950s. So um, black troops and white troops served in completely different units. Um, they were never mixed. Wow. And um, a lot of the African-American soldiers who came to Northern Ireland said that this was the first place where they were ever treated as equals. Wow. And the pubs in Northern Ireland didn't care if you were black, white, Christian, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, or whatever. If you were if you were a soldier and you wanted a drink, you were you were welcome, welcome. in. That's amazing. And they these were um, black guys and white guys in the American army who had never drank together and couldn't legally drink together in the states. Signed in a neutral space in, in, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, they're just here in in you know places like little villages out around County Tyrone and County Armagh mm. and sitting in a pub <laughs> having a drink together. I know Amazing. it wasn't always easy. You know, there are cases where, you know, fights broke out and things and uh, uh, between different factions of troops. But for the, for the most part, um, the, the black troops that were over here said they were, they were treated as equals and respected by, um, by the people of Northern Ireland. Um, oh, beautiful there's, story. There, there's one story of a guy who went into a shop and um, he uh, he just walked in, and the the woman running the shop was like, uh, "Oh, how can I help you, sir?" And he just stood there and didn't say anything. And she was like, "Are you you know are you okay? You know, do you, do you speak English?" Kind of thing, because he was just standing there looking around him, and he hadn't said anything because he assumed that she was talking to someone else because no one in his life had ever called him sir. Wow. And he'd never been treated as a as a human until he arrived in this little shop out in out in rural Northern Ireland. Wow! And for you know for him, just being called sir mm-hmm. was such a huge thing. 
and you know not long after the second world war then the the american military got rid of uh, their their kind of segregated units and people credit the their their time in northern ireland with uh, having quite a big impact on that wow that's amazing it really is so how do people if anybody anybody wants to get in contact with 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 you or or see what you're what you're doing how do we find you uh, you can find me on basically any online platform on Wartime NI. Um, so the website is wartimeni.com. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all just Wartime NI. Um, and yeah, f- feel free to get in touch and tell us stories or ask us about other things. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep the stories going. And, uh, Create awareness. Yeah. That's, yeah, creating awareness and educating, informing, and hopefully entertaining as well. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.